I'm Laura Ikata, and you are listening to The Urban Anti Show. This show highlights Alaska Native issues and topics. It features guests from all over Alaska who can share their knowledge and experiences of certain topics. Laura Ikata, and today on the Urban Anti Show, we are going to have guest Yvonne Peter. He's going to be talking about his life, his educational journey, and the leadership roles he has held in his community. Be sure to like the Urban Anti Show on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Shoji Yvonne Peter Oji, Shahan Adeline, Peter Raboff, I chun Shati Ernest Raboff Gabakwa, I chun Shitsi Stephen Sehotel, Peter Sr. of a shrine Nili, I gave a cry. Chen, I should see Catherine Peter, um, Stevens Village, but Nili gave a cry. Chen, the the gishi and the choicely, that that. Yeah, my name's Ivan Peter. Come from Marduk Village originally. Um, mother, my mother's Adeline Peter Rayboff, and my father's the late Ernest Rayboff. And my grandparents are from Arctic Village, the late Stephen Peter Sr. I got to live up there with him when I was a little boy. Uh, my mom sent me up there. And my late grandmother's Catherine Peter, who's originally from Stevens Village, and she's Koyakon, my grandpa's Gwichen. Um, although they both had a mixture of Gwichen and Koyakon ancestry. And uh, although my grandmother was born in Stevens Village, uh, she lost her parents to tuberculosis and was adopted by Chief Zayas Lula of Gwichaja of Fort Yukon. So at seven years old, she actually had to learn Gwichin, even though she was raised speaking Koyakon initially. Um, an interesting little note, side note to that is that uh, Catherine later became renowned as the leading Gwichin linguist. And very few people know that she actually learned Gwichin as a second language, which I always like to hold up as as I think about all this hard work our 
people are doing right now to learn our indigenous languages as second languages. That's who I am. <laughs> yeah. And that's just like the reality. It's some of our second language when it was really should have been our first. True. But yeah, I'll do my introduction now. Lor ikada se uza de hun danaka hefte de ludenith a says ni ita e Johnny kada buuza ina e misty carlo riley buuza setsu uza madeline riley setsia uza james ikada senior vela um nolato hatan eslan fairbanks lusta my name is laura my koyukan name is de ludenith a um, my parents are Misty, Carlo Riley, and Johnny Cata, and my grandparents are Madeline Riley and the late James E. Cata. And my family comes from Nolato, Kaikuk, Minto, um, but I live in Fairbanks, going to UAF. Awesome. Yeah. So you talked a lot about your family. Um, can you talk about how you... Uh, grew up what kind of cultural activities you took part in sure yeah I this is a long story um and and I have to start it not with how I grew up and the activities I participated in but the experience of my mother's generation um, because she was a part of the generation that was sent away um, for her starting at six years old um, part of the part of the boarding school generation, you know, where the schools and churches and and government institutions were working to eradicate our language, our cultures, our spirituality, our ceremonies, and um, and that inflicted a lot of trauma and suffering, you know, into our our people and our communities, um, you know, a lot of loss. And um, there's still, I think, a lot of healing and grieving that we need to do around some of that while we're simultaneously doing this work of revitalization and healing. And um, so my mother was a part of that generation that was sent away. And so my, my story really, um, and how I was raised um, is an inverse of that, in that I, my mother was a single mother. Um, and right about the time I was five years old or so, she was living and we were living in Anchorage. And she said that even though she was really um, navigating a challenging time in her life, something told her that she was supposed to send me up to my grandparents and to tell the people there to raise me traditionally. And so as hard as that was for her, she took me to the airport and stuck me on a plane and sent me north. And, um, you know, I first spent summer time in Guichaja, which is Fort Yukon, with my grandmother, Catherine Peter, Peter when she still lived there. And, um, then also spent some time when my grandmother wasn't there with um, another family um, of uh, Mary Fields family. And I still refer to, she had many daughters and I still refer to a lot of her daughters as my sisters. Um, and because they had I, all girls. So I was like the little boy. So I was really spoiled. Um, I remember they used to always give me popsicles and <laughs> ice cream and stuff. Um, so I got a little bit of experience at that young age in Guichaja. Um, and then Later, my mother sent me up to Vashanko, which is Arctic Village, and I got to live up there with my grandfather, my late grandfather, Stephen Peter Sr., and my uncle, Walter Peter, 
And back then, it was before there was electricity in the village. So I got to experience some of the last years of living in some of our villages before there was any electricity. There was still the kerosene lantern that you pump in the middle of the house to get light. And um, still to this day, our homes are primarily heated by wood. So, um, but back then that was it. And so, you know, you're still hauling wood. There was a river um, that, Kaichunjik um, River that flows right there by Vashrenko and a little creek and the creek is actually called Vashrenko and that's what our village is named after is that creek that feeds into the Kaichunjik um, River and that um, there used to be a, I used to have to, I had a yoke, a wood yoke that went over my shoulders with two five gallon buckets and my job as a little kid used to be to walk down from our cabin to the river and fill up a couple buckets and you know I can only fill them up like a quarter full or whatever because they're so heavy and, and pack it up the hill and in the winter time we had a hole that we kept in the ice you know year round and we'd have to chip it open when it would freeze over a little bit and we dip the five gallon buckets in there to haul our water and so I got some of those experiences. My, my grandfather couldn't speak English very much um, and unfortunately, I couldn't speak Wichin at the time, and so we really weren't able to communicate very much, you know, and he often would say, like, I wish you understood our language more because I have so much more that I wanted to share with you, and he was an oral historian of our people, and and it, it is one of the things that I've shed tears over, you know, multiple times in my life, and now as a second language speaker and learner, as I read old interviews that he did with people, or I listen to his voice and the Alaskan language archive, like there are multiple times, like now that I'm understanding his words that I have like tears of sadness and joy at the same time of like finally beginning to hear my grandfather. And so, um, you know, and, and so up there in Arctic, I got to, you know, hunt and fish, um, but as a little boy, and I did it a lot by myself. Like, you know, if you ask people who were around back then when I was a boy, they'll, they'll, they often will say like, yeah, he raised himself, you know, um, and in a lot of ways I did. I, you know, a lot of my first animals from the smallest thing, like from a fish to a duck, all the way up to a caribou, I got alone when I was out there in the land. And I, and I had watched enough or, you know, seen enough that I kind of figured it out along the way. One time I even brought a caribou to one of our elders who's now passed one of my elder relatives, uh, Naomi. And I brought the whole caribou in her house so she could, teach me really the names of all the parts of the caribou in our language and and um how to um, butcher it you know in in the way that she would want me to and a little funny side note on that is she gave me one of her knives and she said hey i i shree jane in that's a really sharp knife you know and I, and I looked at her and i was like i i, I know i'm like i know what i'm doing I, know I have a knife it's fine and she was like all right you know so then she was telling me the part and i was cutting and then pretty soon like I lifted up my hand and there was blood coming off my hand and I looked at it and I was like oh my gosh I just like totally sliced through my hand her knife was so sharp I didn't even feel it cutting me <laughs> and I was then she looked at me and she's like I told you <laughs> that's a sharp knife and it was we were both cracking up and you know and so I I took care of, took care of it and it wasn't like super bad or anything but anyhow so but then my mom also brought me back down to Anchorage so I got to see you know, we lived in, um, well, what's that neighborhood? Mountain View. Um, there was a, there was a new, there was like a, a building at 801 Carlick Street in Anchorage that was like a lockdown, low-income housing complex. And we lived there right after it opened. And so I got to experience both like 
for the village life and our culture and be exposed to our language, even though I never understood it really, but I heard it around me a lot because it was the primary language still being spoken back then in Vashrenko. And then, um, but also then like the impoverished city native life and kind of the struggles and the hardships there. And so I'd say that was my upbringing, like this back and forth between urban native poverty and then getting to be with grandparents and really strong culture bearers on the land. Um, and I think both of those are what have made me be who I am today, you know, someone who's kind of comfortable in both of those realms. And um, yeah, so that's a little bit, I guess, about kind of my upbringing. And so I, I, I also, I guess one last story kind of of cultural connection and practice. So my mom brought me to Fairbanks after I finished my sixth grade year up in Arctic Village um, because she wanted me to get a better Western education. And um, she felt like I had gotten some good cultural grounding, you know, from my time up in Washington. Um, and really, I was so mad, like I did not want to leave the village. I'm like, what? I'm finally becoming a young man and I can go out further into the mountains on the land. And, you know, and, and, and I was I was sad, to be honest, you know, like I missed out on some really big years on my buddies who stayed in Washington got to really learn more skills about living on the land and, and hunting and fishing that I missed out on, you know, and then I had to go after a lot of knowledge later in my life. Um, and uh, which is all really humbling, you know, when you're like already an adult and you're trying to learn how to make salmon strips, you know, and things like that. But that's, it's okay though, to do that. And that's something that I think like, I would want to let other listeners know it's like, okay, to acknowledge and understand that we don't know something or don't know how to do something and to go learn it at any age. And it, and I'll tell you, it feels good, no matter how young or old you are, to learn how to do some of the things that are prized knowledge and skills within our culture and communities. It just feels good. And, and by learning it ourselves, then we have that ability to teach others in our community and younger people. And so then that ensures that continuation of our knowledge and language and who we are as Native people. So, um, yeah, so one funny uh, last story about that is she brought me down to Fairbanks to get a better Western education. And my first job was actually acting in a play at Alaska Land called The Athabascan Experience. And it's actually where I met some lifelong friends. But in that play, like we all were kids from different villages and we had to dress up like characters from our traditional stories and for tourists, like act out these traditional stories. Um, I remember like one of my roles was to be little fish in a, in a story. <laughs> and, uh, but we also drum and sang, you know, different songs from different Diné. I use the word Diné instead of Athabascan just because it's a word from within our own language. And so different Diné people's uh, drum songs and stuff. And so, so I also have experiences as a young person engaging, you know, in potlatch ceremony and drumming and singing and just hanging out with our people and we were when we moved to Fairbanks we were still impoverished and so we lived in on 22nd Avenue in South Cushman and so I got to know a lot of the different native kids and non-native people that lived kind of in that part of town um, when I was young so yeah it's a little That's bit a about very how nice I grew story. Up. thanks it wasn't yeah. all fun and games by <laughs> the way there were some there's I left out some really hard experiences I had to go through as a child, you know, and a lot of yeah. those traumas and hardships that a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of our people go through. Mm -hmm. um, but that's also kind of why I've chosen this path that I'm on in life too, 
because I just didn't want other of our people to have to kind of suffer and go through some of those hardships. And I wanted to understand why our people are suffering and why we're in these impoverished situations. And, you know, like I didn't know about my mom going to boarding school even until I was in my 20s and I began to learn about it through the university. You know, and then later I went back to Sibdwell and say, whoa, like, were you sent away? And what happened when you were sent away? And and then of course I went through kind of those waves of emotions that we go through today, people getting, being really angry about mm -hmm. the trauma that was inflicted on our parents and grandparents, you know, and then understanding how those traumas affected our lives. And, you know, but anyways, that's all a part, I think, of the healing process of learning the truth and learning the history and better understanding than how we can take better steps moving forward. So that's how your background has influenced your work today? I would say, yeah. I mean, I think my exposure to our language and culture at a young age and, but also to the hardships and traumas that our people faced um, kind of culminated in um, me making a decision. I was actually a high school dropout, so I never really finished kind of Western education at the K-12 level. I only went to like a year and a half of high school and just realized it's not for me. And, or no, a little more than a year and a half high school, but maybe I finished a full two years. But I just knew it wasn't for me, like that whole Western educational structure. And, but at the same time, I just felt this deep, calling of like wanting to change things so that they could be better for our future generations at the time specifically for my own kids like even though I was 17 I kind of had a feeling I was going to have kids someday and I was like man I want to make sure that like I'm a good father for my kids that I'm show them love that I'm there for them that I have some knowledge that's valuable that I can teach them and so I started to feel this responsibility sense of responsibility growing in me as a teenager. And I made a very conscious decision to honor that feeling um, that I was having. And I just said, okay, I'm going to do the hard work, whatever I need to do to try to figure out a path in this life so that I can be there for my kids and um, can show, show them love in a healthy way. And um, yeah, and go after knowledge that's important. For not, not only my kids, but I, I, you know, as I got older, I realized more and more for, for our people more broadly. So yeah, so that my upbringing absolutely a, a, a kind of shaped the whys to how I live to have chosen to live my life since that since that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you did uh, go on to get your bachelor's degree, right? Yeah, I did. So yeah, I argued. What was that way, in? I argued my way in the UAF. I had a mohawk actually at the time <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I was 16 and I was a high school dropout. And I remember going up to the admissions office and the admissions officer being like, uh, you need to go back to high school. <laughs> They're like, you need to finish high school. They're like, you're, you're here too early. And there was one native, not Alaska native, but Polynesian Islander who was an accept admissions officer. And he, he told me one time when I was up there trying to like argue my way in, he said, oh, hey, come in my room and close the door. I said, okay. So I went in there and I said, he said, look, he said, look, bro. He said, um, I'll tell you what, you're very adamant about coming in here and wanting to try to get in. And why don't you take the a practice ACT test? And if you score above the average freshman at UAF that gets in here, which was, I think, a 21 or something, 
And then he said, I'll give you a chance to, to, to come in on, on kind of like a probationary basis uh, this coming fall, this next fall. And so I said, deal. So anyway, so I went in there and I took the practice ACT and I think I scored a 27. And so then when I met with him, he was like, you weren't kidding. You kind of know like English and math. And stuff. <laughs> I was like, I told you, I've been trying to tell you guys, like, it's not that I'm like not educated or, you know, don't understand stuff. It's just that I'm not fit for high school. I, and I'm ready to, I just want to come into the university. And anyway, so he, um, yeah, he gave me a chance. He told me I had to get my GED in my first semester of college. So I got my GED while I was in college in my first semester. And um, he tried to stick me in developmental courses, but I argued with him that I should actually be in sophomore level courses. And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He's like, okay, I'll, I'll let you take freshman level, but you got to work hard and you know make and succeed in this because I'm giving you this chance. And I was like, no, it's a deal, man. I said, I'll put in the work. So anyways, I, I also have to credit rural student services and folks like uh, Sue McHenry, who was there, who really helped me to make sure that I was able to succeed at the university. Um, and then some really great professors over the years who were very supportive because it was hard, you know, to, to make it through the university. Um, I did I did have to put in some extra work, you know, in, in some areas to catch up a little bit. But, um, but yeah, with all that support and with kind of like a determination that I was gonna get this thing done, um, I, I made it through and got my bachelor's degree in 1998 and the last game of studies with a minor in political science. I was actually double majoring and I had I had two more courses to get a second bachelor's in political science, but um, Sue, who was my advisor, was like, Yvonne, you know, you can graduate this semester if you just change it to a, a major with a minor. And I was like, what? I could be done with college this May? She's like, yeah, I'm like, do it. Let's do it. I'm like, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm so ready to graduate. So I never did get that second bachelor's in uh, political science, but that's okay. I mean, I, I just wanted to, you know, have accomplished getting a college degree, which um, back then was still, I was a part of maybe the second, what I would consider maybe like the second wave of Alaska natives who were getting bachelor's degrees. Um, so that was, that was like, um, it felt like a big deal, you know, to get, to get through college back then. Yeah. And you took a very untraditional path. Yeah, that's the story of my life. <laughs> untraditional <laughs> path. It's funny. It's kind of like an untraditional path to tradition. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and why did you choose that degree program? Well, originally, I was actually a psychology major because I was really interested in understanding, like, what had happened to our people, how our human mind works, and I had a lot of my own philosophy and theory already. Um, but then I realized like, oh, I don't want Western thinkers to influence the way I understand our reality and experience as human beings. And so I got out of the psychology program pretty quick in my freshman year. Um, and then I shifted towards math only because math was, I found math was easy for me. And it like, and it had an answer. And I was like, oh, wow, there's something that, you know, I could study that like has an absolute answer to it every time. Um, and, and I could, my mind kind of worked in a mathematical way. So I was like, oh, this is cool. I'll just do math. And, um, but then I later realized that math just becomes theory 
after linear algebra. <laughs> and so I was like, oh man. So it's really just philosophy. And like all the math professors are like, yeah, pretty much it becomes philosophy. And I'm like, ah, I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to do a math major then. And, um, and at the, and all around that time, I found this increasing pull towards wanting to be active in social justice and social change for our people. Because as I was learning this history of colonization and oppression and boarding schools, it just fired me up to want to like be a part of changing things so that we could have equality for us as Native people in our own homeland. And it was just, you know, painful to learn about that history. And, um, and so I became really active actually during my undergraduate years with the Native Student Organization. We were doing protests for Columbus Day and things like that um, at, a, at a really, at a time where it wasn't a big popular thing to be doing, but that's what we, we chose to like be engaged in that way um, back then. And it was a very active time actually at UAF in the early nineties where we had a, a really active Native student body who was very engaged in social justice. and. Um, launching a lot of different actions and activities to kind of raise awareness about the inequalities and inequities and traumatic histories um, that related to our people. So, so yeah, so I think that that mix of all of those things kind of led me to Alaska Native Studies and political science. I like wanted to know the history. I wanted to know what was happening. And I also wanted to understand how politics works kind of at a state, national and international level. And and so that I think is why those two degree programs ended ended up being where I chose to focus. Yeah, thank you. Um, and did you get a master's degree? So I finished my bachelor's and went to work in Guichage at the Yukon Flat Center, which is a, a university rural center. And I was so happy to like, two days after graduate to get to move back to the village. I missed it so much and um, began to like dip my fit more into academia. And um, one thing that I'll share from that time was I was sent as a delegation to New Zealand, to Aotearoa, to learn from the Maori people about their cultural renaissance and their language revitalization efforts. And so so back in, I think it was like 1999, maybe I got to travel for two weeks through New Zealand from what they call a marae, which is like their um, sacred ground, community grounds where they do a lot of education and ceremony and training and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, and it was just so riveting of an experience, like life-changing to see an indigenous community so strongly grounded in their culture and identity and having been successful in bringing their language back to a living language within their community. Um, and their renaissance had started around 1980. And so I, I got to see it about 19 years in. And by then they had all the way from a language nest, like the one we have here now in Fairbanks, all the way up to high school level where the kids were completely educated through their language as the medium language medium for education. And anyway, so that was a really um, big experience for me at that time in my life of understanding and seeing what was possible to, to do um, within our native community. And so anyway, so I moved back to, to um, Guichaja there and then made my way back up to Vashrenko and that as our renewable energy manager. So I like got trained to put in solar panels and stuff like that. And, 
um, was involved in our work to protect Arctic Refuge just as a tribal member and kind of related to my renewable energy job. Um, and then was asked to and transitioned into serving as a chief for our people um, when I was 24, which now when I look back, I'm just like, man, I was so young and had so much more to learn and grow into. Um, but the community felt like it was the right time to put me into that kind of a role. And, and, and I learned a lot. And during the years that I served in that role for three years and um, following that, I felt the calling to go back to further my education. And so, um, so that's when I started my master's degree after serving those three years as chief for Arctic and um, began. And it took me 12 years or so to finish my master's degree because it wasn't the highest priority for me. I was more involved in, again, kind of social change, social justice, a lot of leadership development work that I was focused on. And then ultimately, which transitioned into um, healing work. And, um, and yeah, so that, that was really where, where my emphasis was. So I didn't really wrap up my master's degree until years later when I really had to in order to transition back into academic leadership within the university, which I had left after I had transitioned out of my job in Wichaja at the Econ Flat Center, you know, many years earlier. And oh. what kind of um, challenges did you face as the tribal chief? Um, well, I should say my master's degree was in, is in rural development. So that's, that's where I focused. And I focused on taking cultural practices, worldview, and approaches to behavioral health interventions for suicide prevention, primarily, but also just for healing more broadly. And, um, and so that, that was really the focus of my, my master's degree and the work that I was doing at the time. Um, but going back now to the time when I was the chief for Arctic, the types of challenges, I mean, there were, this whole podcast could have just been on the challenges that I faced when I was a chief because I was young, I was inexperienced, I had so much to learn on so many levels, not like all across the board, like I had so much to learn about our own language and culture and ways of being as Gwich'in people, I had so much to learn about how Western society really operated more fully, you know, on a political level. Um, so I would say the challenges kind of reflected that kind of where I was at in my life and how much I still had to learn both of those arenas. Luckily, I had chiefs and elders to guide me at the community level and provide me a lot of insight and input as I na navigated kind of that role of leadership within our community. And I learned a lot about how our community operates. And like we have, you know, we're, we're matrilineal you know, as Dene people and our clans follow our mother's line and in our community, um, you know, there's matriarchs, usually like a grandmother within a family and the role of that matriarch is so important for our people and for those families. And so I learned a lot about how, you know, we have like this elected tribal council, but then we have the really the way our, our, our people are, are organized and structured within our communities. And so I had to learn about how to navigate that well and you know, because if 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 the major kind of like clan grandmothers in the in the community were were saying yes, this is the right thing to do, then the council most of the time would say yes, this is the right thing to do, and everything would be good and at peace in the community because you know you knew you had the support of you know each of the major families in the community, 
and there was balance that was maintained as decisions were being made. And so um, what it looks like from an outsider just looking at a tribal council, like talking about a decision and making a decision, they don't really see all of the background conversations and work that really need to happen to make sure that like all the right people are aware of what the decision is moving towards and you know why a decision might be being made. And um, and so, so on that cultural level, I, I I learned a lot being in that role about like, you know, how our people are really organized and structured socially within our community. And even though we don't, you know, we still have a lot of work to bring back our clan systems and how the clan systems work and how we relate to each other. Um, they were still functionally at play just through the way that our families were organized and still very much reflecting that matriarchal approach to how our people um, identify. And so, um, so anyhow, that, so that I had learning to do there. And then I also had learning in kind of how to represent our people within the state and national systems and <clears throat> learning about all the different organizations like the Alaska Federation of Natives, the National Congress of American Indians, the at the time, the Alaska Intertribal Council, and um, and then also just the different state agencies. And so, anyways, there was a lot of challenges to all those learning curves. You know, I made mistakes for sure. I, I had to grow into them and accept them, and then learn from them and try to do it better the next time. A lot. Um, I learned that you know it's okay to make mistakes, but it's important to also like sit and reflect and learn from them, and hopefully not make them again. And um, yeah, so I would say there were definitely many times that I was just super frustrated because our tribes are so oppressed and controlled and have, um, and they're not respected, you know, certainly not back then by the state government. Um, they were more so by the federal government because we just got onto the federal register of federally recognized tribes, you know, back in the 1990s. And so um, that at least positioned us with a better relationship with the federal government. Um, but yeah, so I would say, I mean, I'm talking in generalities here instead of the specific challenges that I really faced, but there were certainly a lot of challenges in there that were very, very frustrating as I realized like we don't have the respect that we should deserve as tribal governments in this state. And what is that balancing act of like pushing on the edge towards greater justice and greater equality while not burning the bridges with all the important people in state agencies or in national associations that we need to work with in order to secure jobs for our people and forward progress for our communities. And so it's a, it's a balancing act, you know, and as a young person, I just wanted to like, I wanted radical change and I wanted it now. And I think I, learned through the years that like sometimes change just takes time and you can't force things to happen in organic in an inorganic way like like you know people have to heal and grow and learn and then be ready for change because you can't just like jump from one point to the next just because you can see the two points it's like you still have to walk through the valley in between <laughs> you know like so yeah yeah so you were just fired up in college and then you just took that into your life yeah I would say I got fired up um maybe even before college which got me into college in the first place <laughs> and then I think um in college I continued that that journey of wanting to push on the edges of what needed to, what I felt like needed to change to make things better for our people and communities. And 
um, to this day, I feel like I still live on that edge of pushing into change and transformation that um, a lot of people are uncomfortable to step into because there's a lot of unknowns in that space and there's a lot of risk in that space. But I just feel like that's what leadership is too. It is like being willing to go out there kind of and um, try to help um, nurture and support into the spaces that are, I feel like are important or maybe more of our people feel like are important for us to move into. Um, and that's kind of how we landed with our was starting Tananchato, which is our Gwich'in language nest that we opened last March, um, and why I chose to step down from a really secure, great job as the vice chancellor of a university to being a daycare director. <laughs> um, because, you know, I just felt like we had to do similar to what the Maori and the Native Hawaiians did, which was people among us need to step down from our jobs and fundamentally change our lives to prioritize our language if we really want it to be revitalized into a language of daily use again among our people. And like now is the moment. Now was the moment 20 years ago, but I think it finally like hit me really hard a year and a half ago when I was hunting that now was the time for me that I just needed to stop talking about it and start doing it. And, um, and so that's basically, you know, that again, just another, like I said, this continuing journey for me and how I've approached my life to following my heart and listening to what I feel like I'm being called to do and trusting that it's the right thing. And um, luckily I've been really blessed throughout my life to have influential and healthy balanced elders who I've talked to and who, you know, let me know like, yeah, no, this is the right thing for you to do right now. Just, you know, go for it. Don't hold back and, and spend as much time with me as possible so that you can learn how to speak better. <laughs> so you just had like really good mentors who led you to all of these leadership roles. You've held a lot of leadership roles, various board positions and, um, I saw that you co-founded Native Movement. Yeah. Do you want to talk about your various leadership roles? Um, I don't talk about them very much. It's funny. But I, because I so much live in the now. And the now right me is just like all about talking with Jen the little babies, learning my mm -hmm. language as rapidly as possible, figuring out ways to produce children's books. Um, and so I don't really live much in the space of thinking about my previous roles. Um, although when I reflect on them, I have fond memories of the work that I was able to do there and the people that I was able to engage with. Um, I made a movement, co-founded Native Movement with my wife and partner. Well, she doesn't like me referring to her as my wife, but my partner <laughs> um, in a begay who's Navajo. And uh, we met through actually another leadership program that I was a part of years ago. But we've this is, yeah, this August will have been partners for 20 years in this lifetime, uh, raising kids and building programs and doing social change work together, which is, and it's been beautiful. But um, we've co-founded Native Movement back in 2004, because even though I was serving as a chief, we, it was still like a lot of politics to get other chiefs and leaders to invest money in youth leadership development and in youth programs and in language programs and culture programs. And so I, her and I decided, well, why don't we just 
create a nonprofit organization that could advance pushing at the edges of social justice for our people in, in, in arenas and in ways that appointed or elected tribal leaders or other leaders sometimes can't step into those spaces, even if they really believe strongly that we should make change. So we create an organization that would have the freedom to do things like leadership development and push at the edges of social justice where a lot of our other leaders and people can't have their voices too strongly in those spaces because there'll be other repercussions for them in their leadership roles or back to their people. And so so that that was kind of the vision that resulted in us co-founding Native Movement to kind of advance that work um, at, at, at a broader level within our community and outside of our community. Um, and that again, that's a whole other multiple series of podcasts that talk about kind of Native Movement's um, development and growth over the years, but um, has maintained kind of that core focus of its work um, within Alaska primarily now, but it used to be national. And because we'd had, we had at one point had offices in Flagstaff, Arizona, as well as um, Anchorage, Alaska, where we were doing work both in the Southwest as well as up here. And, uh, but now it's primarily an Alaska-based organization with offices in Fairbanks and Anchorage, um, doing just a broad spectrum of really amazing work across the state and, and really Ina and their board and the team there deserves all the credit for that. Um, I haven't really been involved intimately with Native Movement for um, many years because I was focusing on my other leadership roles, um, such as being the vice chancellor at UAF. So, um, but but yeah, so I, I think that over the years, you know, I've I've served uh, certainly in um, different types of leadership roles um, in nonprofit organizations tribes, tribal organizations, international associations. Um, I currently serve on um, just a few boards. The, one of the most important to me is the Gwich'in Council International that represents the Gwich'in Nation within the Arctic Council um, Forum. <clears throat> and that's what has been one of my longest standing board memberships. Um, but really when I think about, you know, those positions of leadership, it's really always comes back to me of thinking through like our time on a daily basis is limited. Our time on a weekly and monthly and annual basis is limited. And what is the, what, what, what do I choose to prioritize, you know, with, with my time and my energy that, that is limited. And so that I, I really think about that. And as I, as I've gotten older, I've learned that prioritizing my health well and well-being and being grounded and just feeling at peace each night before I go to sleep and feeling excited to be engaged in, in the efforts that I'm involved in as I wake up each morning. Like that's how I want to structure and prioritize my life. And around, you know, being in that groove or I think now you'd call it that vibe, <laughs> that good vibe of like, yes, let's get it another day. Let's advance this really important um, work and effort um, and put good, loving energy out there into the world and continue to challenge ourselves to grow and learn in ways that we know will um, help us to live a good life and feel good about who we are and how we relate to others and be of contribution value to our family and community around us. Like that's kind of like where my mind is at. And um, like I said, I and yes, I've definitely been blessed over the years to have had not only mentors, like official mentors, I wouldn't even call them official mentors, but people that 
I've watched the way that they lead. I watched the way that they live. And I'm like, yes, that's what I want to go after. That's where I want to get to, you know, someday in my life, even though I might recognize that I have years of healing to do, or I still struggle with, you know, some of the things that I, I know I make decisions around that might not be the best thing for me, but like, that's okay. Like, I think it's okay for us as human beings to just recognize like where we're at in our own growth and healing and awakening and, and to also venture into spaces where we're uncertain. Is this the right thing for me? But then we find out by doing it and we're like, oh, well, maybe this isn't the right thing for me to be doing right now, or, or this isn't, you know, doesn't feel right. And so we really, we really have to, I think, grow into um, trusting our intuition and, and taking time to reflect on what is occurring in our life and recognizing whether that's something that we need to work on in ourselves, or maybe it's a relationship we need to change with somebody else around us so that we can get back into that place of being on our path. And I think that's the way that like the late chief Peter John, who was also one of my mentors, you know, he had talked to me about that um, when he was like 99 years old, I think, but he had talked about the fact that we choose the path we are on. Like that's the freedom that we've been given as human beings in this lifetime. And that, and that we have to consciously remember that we make that decision each day to be, to, to what type of path that we're going to walk. And um, anyways, yeah. So I think that lots of different mentors, lots of different wisdom that I think some of which I heard and it took me like 10 or 20 years to understand. I'm like, oh, that's what they meant. That was way deeper than just a simple few words that they were saying, <laughs> you know, but I think also that's just a part of the nature of life that the more we live it, the more we, re we recognize like, maybe all this wisdom that our elders were trying to impart up, impart on us when we were kids that just sounded like a few words at the time, but later we recognized had uh, just a tremendous depth and profoundness to what they were really communicating to us. So do you feel like um, the work now at your daycare is very rewarding? Well, one of our, one of my mentors and our, our leaders for our people, actually, Interior Trimble Gilbert, Chief Trimble Gilbert, you know, shared with me that he said, um, the work that you all are going to do there at Tananjato is sacred work. That space is sacred. And I think that it's so true. You know, we're, we have babies in here. We're playing with them and nurturing them. We're taking care of them. We're showing them a healthy, loving environment and we're only communicating them with them through the Gwich'in language. And so they're hearing and experiencing um, Gwich'in adults. Three of us are in here right now, our lead teacher, Hilda Johnson, our intern, Jada Carroll, and myself. And so it's like, it's Hilda and I were almost in tears every day for the first month that we were running it. We we're like, oh my gosh, there's like this space where young native kid babies are getting supported and loved and spoken to through our language and um and it's there's a lot of healing on multiple levels that happens by doing this work because all the parents at least one parent of each of the kids that are in the chato are also studying Gwich'in in some cases both parents are and so they're this the kids are getting reinforced with the language back at their in their home as well and so it's like us, the kids, and the families are all on this collective journey together of bringing our language back into regular living use. And 
Um, and there's a lot of healing work that has to happen for that to happen just for each of us individually, like grieving that we weren't taught our language when we were growing up as kids and spoken to it and understanding why that was. And then for us as second language speakers, as we speak more with elders, for some of them, it's triggered memories where then they're like, oh, you know, you need to know, like I was beaten over the head with a log in my village by the teacher for speaking my language. And, and I recognize that like, oh man, me, them seeing us working so hard to learn our language has, has kind of triggered them to want to have to share some of the traumas that they went through around getting the language taken away from them, you know? And so, but then that's also healing for the, the elders at the same time as they get to let that story go and they get to support then the revitalization of our language through helping us to learn how to speak our language better. So it's just triggered and begun to have a effect that, you know, is so much more and different than what we originally had just thought about. We're just going to speak to these babies in Gwich'in and, and learn to do that. Um, and so then I keep reflecting back to Trimble's words that, you know, we're doing sacred work. We're raised, and, and it is sacred work to raise our babies, you know, for all of us. And, and in this case, it just happens to be through this context of wanting to be grounded in our, our old cultural values and worldview and language. And, um, and so that's just what we're, we're trying to do. Thank you. Yeah, it sounds like you're doing really good stuff there. And how did this daycare start? Um, well, a group of us have been talking about it for years. <laughs> like I said, that, that was like my realization when I was out hunting. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't just talk about this anymore. I can't just like make these little plans here and there about doing it. And so after coming back from hunting back in 2020, fall of 2020, um, I just started to call some of the people that I had talked with about this over the years and different kind of meetings and things. And just to see what they thought, I said, hey, I'm thinking about, you know, just getting a house somewhere and opening up a language nest and just starting to talk with the kids. And um, every person I called, including elders, as well as some language teachers and kind of people involved was just overwhelming. They were like, yes, do it and do it now. Don't wait. Let's just make it happen. And so after 110% of the people <laughs> that I called and talked to about it responded that way, most importantly, Hilda Johnson, who's from my village too, um, I, I said, told her like, I would leave my job. And she said, yeah, I'll leave my job. So then her and I would become the staff to really open the Um, Then I knew that, okay, we have the people, two of the core people that would need to be committed to really make it happen. And then I and then we kind of reached out and built an advisory board to provide some guidance and input to us. And um, yeah, and then we we found a house and um, secured it for the Chato. And we didn't wait to build a strategic plan. We didn't wait to develop curriculum. We didn't wait to build out a daily agenda. Like we just decided at the guidance of our advisory board to just open it and make it happen and just like bring the babies in and Hilda and I will just talk which in to each other and to the kids like as simple as that luckily Hilda has like 24 25 years of experience in early childhood education I mean I think she's just like a couple classes and she could have a degree in ECE 
Um, and then I came in with my background in higher education. So I know that it wasn't like we weren't completely cold turkey, like just thrown into a space with babies. We actually brought educational experience, which I think was really, really important and helpful because we we're largely, I mean, 99.9% .9 of it is Hilda and she deserves the credit for it because she really built out kind of the different centers and spaces within the chateau for the kids to play. Um, and then her and I have been working together with her mother, Florence Newman, and also some with my mother, Adeline, to help us to get our language right around how to say things because um, no one had raised their kid fully in Gwich'in, full immersion only with Gwich'in as a language being spoken for 60 years or so. So there's a lot of words and language that we had to kind of pull up and, and, and receive from elders. Um, for, and then Hilda and I both had to learn a lot of that language to, to use with the kids. Um, even though she's a fluent speaker, um, there are still a lot of words that, you know, she, she really wasn't exposed to growing up, but we needed to use it now with babies. And so, yeah, so we've been learning and growing together and it's, you know, we, we have a lot of fun. There's just tons of humor, you know, that happens in the chateau and, um, you know, like <laughs> we just tease each other, everything that you do with our language, you know, so our, our languages are so, there's so much humor in our Dene languages when you speak them and you understand how you can kind of play on the words um, within the language to, to, you don't, like in English, you have to be a comedian. You like have to think of jokes and, like, you know, try to figure out how to be funny in our languages almost everybody can be a comedian because you don't have to actually like think up of a joke. It's just like the way you say things are just innately funny. Um, and so like that, it's why I think humor is so prominent as a part of our cultural values and the way we are as people. Um, so, so anyhow, yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's how we got started. We just decided to do it and make it happen. And we were really lucky to have some private foundations and individual donors who really believed in what we were doing, um, donated the money to get us started. Um, but the parents also have to pay a monthly uh, fee to help cover the expenses. And so we're all, we're all contributing, you know, in a lot of different ways to make sure that this, that the chateau continues to move forward. Thank you. And is there anything else you want to say to the Native kids listening who may be struggling right now? Yeah, um, a couple of things. One, you're not alone. And if you ever feel like you're alone, reach out to somebody who you trust, who you know um, cares about who you are, and who will be willing to listen to what it is that you're, you're going through. Like sometimes we think as human beings, like no one will understand what we're going through. No one will understand, you know, I'm just different. I'm weird. I'm strange. Like I don't fit in and those sorts of thoughts. But the reality is we're all kind of weird and crazy as human beings and we're all unique. And some of us that are older adults um, who lived for a little while understand that. And we're open to like listening to the unique, quirky, strange, or difficult things that you think about with who you are and how you're coming to understand who you are in this world. And it's okay to be you. It's totally okay to be who you are, whatever that means for you. And um, I, I think it's so important for our young people to know that. And, and it's not your fault that 
you know, all these traumas and hardships that came into our people's world and reality through these histories of colonization and assimilation and oppression, um, you know, they have an impact on us, even in our generation and in your generation. And, and learning and understanding those things is can really help you to understand kind of like why in many ways that our people are struggling in the ways that we do. Um, and it's important for you to know that there's a lot of really healthy, grounded adults out here that come from within our communities and villages who care about you, who understand these histories and these paths and really believe in that strong um, spirit of our people. You know, what um, Chief Peter John used to call Chilwitsin, uh, and in Gwichin we call it Chet Egwenin Dun. And it's like an understanding of a love that binds us all to one another, you know, to the land, to the animals. and. Really, I think I think about that that word that our elders used, and it's like it speaks to the way of our people of how do we live in good relationships with each other, the land, the animals, and the universe around us. It's like what they would call our cosmology, and I think that's something that is so powerful and strong. And so, never give up hope. You know that you can become healthier, that you can become you know whole that you can get to a place of healing from, you know, any past traumas or hurts that you might have experienced. Um, and that you could eventually get to a place to really fully love and accept you as you are with who you are. And um, so don't give up. That was the advice that our elders gave me too when I was young. Don't give up no matter what. Um, also, like, find what it is that lights, ignites that fire in you that you're passionate about, that you want to focus and learn about and go for it, go after it. You know, it's not going to happen by itself. My grandma used to say, if you want to live a good life, you got to work for it. It's like, you have to go after it. And that's also, I think, a major value for our people is um, work, hard work, work for it, work for something. You know, if you want something, go after it. You know, it's not going to just land in a good life. It's not going to just land in your lap. And um you can't be lazy <laughs> you know basically that's what it comes down to you just can't be lazy and um and lastly you know surround yourself with people that are think positively that are trying to better themselves that are going after the things that that you want to go after in your life um, because you'll find that the support and the inspiration you know and the safe spaces and places being able to connect with them and talk with them because they'll listen to you without judging you and judging who you are or judging the decisions you're making and they'll know that like we're all just on this journey of growth and exploration and learning and along the way we'll make mistakes we'll get hurt you know we'll have hard times but that we'll make it through those and on the other side you know find ourselves in places where we're a bit more knowledgeable we're a bit more wise and we can have a bit more fun with life um, along the way. So yeah, I think those are my kind of parting words that I would share with, with any um, young listeners or really listeners of any age. It's like, no matter how old you are, you can go after our language. I love seeing elders. I have worked with elders who are in their 60s, late 60s, and they're speaking their lang our language or their language for the first time. And they also find happiness and joy in getting to learn our language. So really, I guess some of what I shared is not only for young people, it's just for you know any of our people, like, let's do this. Let's heal, let's grow, let's learn, 
let's find the ways to support them and engage with each other in healthy ways because we just have too much division, hurt, and trauma in our communities, and, and we, we, we need to support our people to be moving in a direction that's opposite to that. Yeah, thank you. I feel really inspired now because I was kind of like raised in the city and I've never cut fish. I've never done a lot of things. And so sometimes I feel discouraged, but um, I'm really going to try though. This summer, I'm hoping that I'll get to cut fish somewhere, probably not on the Yukon River, but somewhere. If you're in Fairbanks this summer and I get lucky, you should come to my house and cut fish with me and my daughters, and my <laughs> partner, if you want to. I built mm -hmm. a big chagaikit, which is a smokehouse behind my house in the city because I want to make sure no matter what, we're still making salmon strips, we're still making half dry, we're you know, still being able to smoke meat and make nili gai, um, which is dry meat. So yeah, you're welcome to join us this summer if you're if you're around and we get lucky with some fish. So stay in touch. That's not an invitation to all of your listeners, but <laughs> you, can, you can join us because it's uh it's usually we have we have a good number of people. But yeah, no, that and that's exactly it. Exactly what you just said. Like you have to put it out there into the world what it is that you want to learn to go after and it's okay to not know and you'll you'll find that there's a lot of our people out there who are more than willing to provide the opportunity for you to learn um but like you said it's up to you to put that out there and it's up to you to show up and then to do the work to to, to learn how to do it and on the other end like i said there's just good feelings of of knowing that that you're learning some of this knowledge and skills that are valued among our people all right. Well, appreciate <laughs> what you're doing with your podcast and wish you the best of luck moving forward. Thank you. Have yeah. a good day. Yep. You too. Have a good day. I just talked with Yvonne Peter. He's currently the director for Tenen Chato. We talked about his his life, his education. We talked about his various leadership roles. You can like Tenen Chato on Facebook. Thank you for listening to the Urban Indie Show today. Have a great rest of your week. Mm -hmm.